0: Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Now, as you're turning there, I wanted to give you an update on my daughter, Emma. It's been a few weeks since I've done that, so I wanted to take a few moments here just to share with you that she is still doing very well. Um, We had a great speech therapy session this past Thursday. Every once a week, Emma has speech therapy, and the big thing is just working on her swallowing. Uh, Over the past few weeks, it's gotten stronger so that now the therapist will put some jelly on the end of a tongue depressor and hold near Emma's lips, and Emma will reach out with her tongue and lick the jelly a bit and then swallow. And that's huge. That is huge. We praise the Lord for that. Um, This is our goal, and you will appreciate this. Um, right now, Emma can do some tea. They mix it with thickener to be sure she can swallow it okay. But our goal is to get to the point where she can have an unadulterated peachy tea from Pals. So that's what she's working toward one day. And then to get the trach removed. So keep praying for that trach to be removed. We're, we're taking a look at the, the reality of Christmas through the lens of Hebrews. A very Hebrews Christmas The reason we're in Hebrews is because the one main point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. As Michael opened Hebrews 2 last week, he he preached from where the, the preacher of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is superior to the angels. No angel is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus is, for he is the son of God. And that theme of the superiority of Jesus to the angels continues even in chapter 2 because here's what we're we're dealing with. Jesus is superior to the angels and worthy of our worship. Yet he became lower than the angels. He took the form of, of a human. So the one who was better and superior became lower than the angels. And the question is, why? Why did he have to do that? So that's what we're dealing with today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life, long slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted He is able to help those who are being tempted. Pray with me. Father, let your light shine brightly. We thank you, Father, for your grace that illuminates the darkness of our hearts and minds with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would work and have your way among us today, that as we worship Jesus, we would come to a greater understanding of why he had to be like us and that we would live accordingly. I pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. And of course, December 25th is not far away. That's the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, I hope I'm not giving too much of a shock. But there's a lot of debate as to whether Jesus was actually born on December 25th. And in fact, to be very candid, more than likely he wasn't. Now, don't change your calendars. Don't cancel Christmas. All right, we'll keep celebrating at the 25th because the Bible doesn't really say directly when he was born. And I figure if God had wanted us to know, he would have let us know in the Scripture. So the exact date of his birth, and I'll pick that up later, is not the important thing. Some scholars think that he may have been born in September to October. And they base that upon when John the Baptist's father, Zacharias served in the temple. And they researched that based upon the line of priests that he was in. So they think he would have served around that time. And so Jesus could have been born in September or October. Others think it was in the spring, that that was the time more than likely when shepherds would be out in their field watching their flocks because a lot of the, the ewes would be born at that time. The date really is not the important thing the meaning of it is. The one thing that we must agree upon, even if we disagree about the actual day of his birth, is the purpose and the truth and the importance of the incarnation. That's what we must agree upon. Now, the incarnation refers to God becoming flesh. The embodiment of Jesus in human flesh Now, remember, Jesus, as the Son of God, has always existed. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. However, he only existed in the flesh as he was born to Mary there in that manger in the stable that night in Bethlehem. So he has not always existed in human form, but he has always existed. Paul talked about this this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, when he said, He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It wasn't that Jesus got rid of his divinity to become a man, it was that he added humanity to his divinity, being both fully God and fully man. That's the incarnation. And that is a major point of the book of Hebrews. As I stated, the book of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices. He is superior to any high priest that has ever been. Yet this one who is superior to all things became lower than the angels. For example, verse 9, it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 14 speaks of this. Look at the text there. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood. That speaks of our humanity. You see, the only existence that you and I know is the existence where we are limited by this flesh, by our skin, by our muscles, by our sinews, by the systems that keep us up and walking. We know the limitations and the frailties of human existence. But Jesus knew something else, He didn't always have a body. That's why he emphasizes in verse 14 that he himself likewise in the same manner partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood. He took on human nature. Now in doing so, Jesus truly experienced what we experience. Think about it for a moment. The one who created the Arctic and the Antarctic knew what it was like to experience the coldness of a Palestinian Palestinian night in January. He shivered under the cold. The one who made the sun and the stars knows what it is to walk under the blazing heat of the desert sun in August, feeling his skin burn. Keep in mind, Jesus experienced what we do. There's a good chance that Jesus stubbed his toe. That's not a sin. It may make you sin. You recognize that Jesus probably suffered indigestion at some point. Peter, what was in that stew? He experienced the things that we do, not just the mere appearance. You see, it's one thing to give the appearance of experiencing something, but another thing to experience it in its totality. I remember a few years ago, I watched a, a special with Peyton Manning, the patron saint of UT football, and he was doing this, this tour, kind of going behind the scenes of businesses related to football. And so he showed up at the Wilson factory where they make the footballs that are used in the NFL. So Peyton Manning shows up in his work clothes, puts on an apron, steps up to this, this lady that operates the press where they cut out the footballs and then lace them up. And she teaches him how to do that. So he's standing there. Now, I could not help but think as I'm watching that, you know, that's neat, that's fun. But the, at the end of the day, can he really say he has experienced her life? now I don't know anything about this lady but in my imagination I was wondering what if she's working a double shift to try to pay for medical bills and trying to figure out how to get someone to watch her son so she can work that double shift could Peyton Manning really say I understand I've been there probably not but Jesus can look at us and he can say I've been there Experienced grief in life? You ever stood beside the grave of someone and your heart's breaking? Our Lord can say, "I've been there." I'd remind you of one of the most profound verses in the Bible, John eleven thirty three. Jesus wept. Experienced disappointment in life? Jesus can say, "I've been there." I mean, this was a man that was betrayed and denied by two of his closest friends. He knows betrayal and disappointment. He became flesh and blood, and he did this. Look at what it says, that he himself partook of these things that he might destroy through death the one who has the power of death. He came. Did I just? Can you still still hear me? Okay, good. Good deal. All right. It just sounded odd for a minute. You don't want your preacher sounding odd. All right. The amazing thing is that Jesus did this that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Because here's the dilemma. How could God, who is eternal, destroy the power of death without experiencing death? So he had to become human. Why? So that he might die. Through death might destroy the one who has the power of death. There is no salvation without the incarnation. Now, this passage goes on to give us three reasons why he had to be like us. Let's look at the first one. He had to be like us to destroy the devil. Now notice, he came and partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Now the devil is our enemy. Now I want you to keep in mind that the devil is not the equal of God. God and Satan are not equals in any way. Satan was a created being, an angelic being who rebelled against God and fell. There is no fight between God and Satan for control. There is no cosmic boxing ring where Satan and God are are duking it out to see who wins. God is sovereign, period. But in his providence, he has allowed Satan control of death. Now, I don't plan, even, even present to understand God's plan in these things. But I do know that through death, Jesus came to destroy the power of Satan. Now that's the amazing, the irony of this, the amazing irony, that through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death. It's like he took the weapon that Satan wields against us and he used it against Satan himself to say, you have no power here. Sin and death are connected. Death came into this world through sin. In fact, Paul says that the sting of death is sin. So when Jesus came and on the cross took our sins, he was removing the power of death over us. He willingly died so that death had no claim over him. It had no claim because he was sinless. Remember, the wages of sin is death. So if Jesus lived a sinless life, death had no claim on him because he was sinless. Death could not legally hold on to him. So he destroyed the power of death and the one who wields it the devil. He rendered death powerless. See, the question that we have as we wrestle with verse 14 is, if he has destroyed the devil, why do we still experience death? That word destroy means to make ineffective, to render powerless. It's a destruction that, like, for example, when our minds look back on the cities destroyed by the bombings of World War II, those cities were destroyed, but yet they still existed in in the rubble. Or think of it like this, this illustration. There are two dogs at the Herod household. We have two dogs. One is a 13-year-old Chihuahua, and the other is an Australian Shepherd named Lady, about six years old. Now, about a week and a half ago, the Chihuahua and the Australian Shepherd got into a kerfuffle, I don't know who said what to whom all I know is there in our den they got into it for some reason when we separated them sent them to their separate corners our chihuahua can't put Wade on one of her front legs so I end up with the chihuahua Tippy wrapped in a blanket at the vet's office sitting there thinking Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Tippy had a broken paw so Tippy has a cast on His entire front arm while the paw is being set and healed. So he hobbles around. I have to pick him up to take him outside. Now, here's the amazing thing. My wife Jody goes and picks up the chihuahua. Not a peep. My son Samuel picks up the chihuahua to go outside. Not a peep. I pick up the chihuahua to take the chihuahua outside and I get... (laughs) And the chihuahua bites me. Now this doesn't bother me. Not because it's a chihuahua and small, because it's, but because Tippy is 13 years old and has four teeth in his head. I feel the bite, but it doesn't hurt. Now, I like to make him think he's doing something, so I go, oh, oh, oh Tippy. But it's powerless. It's biting, but no harm. Death is like a toothless chihuahua. <laughs> let that sink with you for the rest of the day oh it'll bite and yep but it's powerless it has no hold on us it has no effect why because Jesus has destroyed the one rendered powerless the one who has the power of death so yes we still feel it but the bite is gone for those who are in Christ Now, that's the second reason that he had to become like us. Not only to destroy the one who has the power of death, but look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Second reason Jesus had to be like us is to set us free from the fear of death. You see, if he has destroyed the one who has the power of death, rendered him powerless, that means we don't have to fear death. You see, that fear of death and any fear creates a slavery. We don't like to talk about death. Such talk reminds us that we can't escape it. I would remind you that of all the billions of people that have ever existed, only two have left this world without dying. Enoch and Elijah. Jesus died. Enoch and Elijah never did. Everyone else experience death. We don't like to think about that. Every cemetery is a a reminder of our limits. Every gravestone that marks a grave is a marker of our own mortality. Sometimes we need to be reminded that life is fragile. As a congregation, we were reminded this last week, one of our own members died very unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. One of my former students from Providence Academy lost her best friend. Her best friend was the young lady whose car was struck by a person trying to evade the police and was killed instantly in her late 20s. Senseless, tragic. See, we need to be aware that death happens, but we don't have to fear it. About three weeks before my mother passed away, I had a conversation with her at the nursing home. I'm very thankful I had a very close relationship with mom and I just looked at her one day as we were talking and I said mom are you afraid of dying I'll never forget her answer she smiled at me and she said and I quote Lord no she said I've got more people waiting on me there than I have here I'm ready death's real I wept when mom died. I still get teary-eyed. But I have hope. There's not a fear. Why? Because I'm a servant of the one who is the resurrection and the life. I'm a servant of the one who said, If you believe in me, even if you die, yet shall you live. And he who believes in me never dies. That's whom I serve. That's whom I'm in. That is the one who has conquered death. You see, in verse 16, reminds us how we can experience this freedom. He says, it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, in many ways, this is a parenthesis. It's a reminder that Jesus did not come to save the angels. He came to save humanity. And the question is, who are the offspring of Abraham? Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 7 answers that. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in God, and it's credited to them as righteousness. That's what Romans 4 teaches. Abraham had faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. How do we have righteousness before God? By faith. By faith, we are part of the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, we don't have to fear death. That is why we must tell. That is why we take seriously the call to evangelize because there are those that are still living in slavery to the fear of death wondering, how can I escape this? How can I find freedom? Church, we have the gospel, the good news that says you can find freedom in Jesus Christ. We have been given a mission. That's why we exist. That's why unashamedly we say we've set a goal of $14,000 to go toward missions. And that's why unashamedly we challenge one another to give. Because if we can't go, now we can go, we can be witnesses where we are here, and we should be. We should be witnesses at Food City, at Walmart, at the place where you work. But if I cannot go overseas, then I need to be willing to give to enable those who are called and able to go overseas. Because we have the message of freedom. In 1862, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Went into effect January 1st of 1863. What do you think would have happened had he signed this document granting freedom to those enslaved, folded it up, placed it in his desk and said, all right, that's done. But nobody knew about it. That would be tragic. How much more is it tragic if we take the gospel and refuse to share this good news of Freedom. We should be letting the news of the gospel freedom ring all over the world because all the nations need to be know that a Savior has come who has conquered the devil, has set us free from slavery to the fear of death, and has come to help us. That's the third reason he had to be like us. He came to help us. Therefore, it says in verse 17, he had to be made. That he had to be made like his brothers is a word of necessity. There was no other way Jesus could accomplish what needed to be accomplished without becoming like us. And notice he says, in every respect, so that, all right, he's made like us to help us by being our high priest in the service of God. That's the first way he helps us. A priest is a representative somebody who stands as a mediator between one and another. Jesus is the superior high priest, merciful and faithful. Not only that, look at what else it says in verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of his people, that's the second way he helps us. As the priest, he intercedes for us. He helps us by granting us propitiation. Now, that's not a word that's used a lot in common conversation. Propitiation means the removal of wrath through the forgiveness of sins. It's a word that carries the weight of God's justice. That to be just, God must judge sin. And Jesus, as the high priest, carried the sacrifice in to the very throne room of God. But this was not a sacrifice that was a lamb or a goat or a bull. It was Jesus himself offering himself as the sacrifice to satisfy God's justice over our sins. What that means, church, is this. God is not mad at us. The scripture says, His anger may last for the night, but His joy comes in the morning, the morning has dawned. joy we don't have to be fearful of seeing a judge on that day we will look and not see the face of an angry stern judge we will see the face of a father who loves and says because you believed enter in to the rest I have made for you now until that day he helps us when we struggle look at verse 18 For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. So you see, he not only is interceding on our behalf now, he has not only paid the price in the past, he is a very present help in time of need now. That word help is a word that means hold on to. Holding fast to. The imagery I got is this. That scene in the movies where the, the, the damsel in distress gets pushed off the edge of a cliff and the hero launches himself and lands and reaches down and at the last moment, grabs the hand and says, I'm not going to let go and then pulls, pulls and rescues the one that was falling. This imagery is that it is Jesus who is holding us. So even as we stumble and fall, when we are tempted, he is not letting go. Why? Because he understands. Hebrews 5.2 talks about the, the human high priest. And it says, the high priest deals gently with the ignorant and wayward because he is beset with weakness. So in other words, we can understand each other's frailties. But the point of Hebrews 5.2 is this. It's from lesser to greater. If a human high priest can understand and deal with the wayward and the ignorant, which I qualify, how much more can Jesus? How much more can the one who left heaven's throne come down and truly understand and empathize? He can truly say, I know. Isn't it amazing that he understands? In January of 2017, Emma had been transferred from the neurointensive care unit at the UT Med Center to to Nova Hospital in North Knoxville to a step-down floor. She was still in a coma showing signs of coming out, but it was still a very difficult time for us. Now, across the street was an Ingalls. It's where we would go. You know, they had a Starbucks in there. We'd get coffee, whatever. You know, that was the place we went to regularly. And I just, for some reason, remember one morning, I'd gone over to get some coffee and pick up some stuff, and as I was going through the line, the person at the checkout was checking me out, and they did their thing. Good morning. How are you doing today? I could have said my head's on fire. They wouldn't have known. But honestly, I thought, you really knew what was going on what would you do if you had any clue if you've ever thought no one understands or cares this verse verse 18 says that's not true Lord Jesus knows and he cares and he comes alongside us and says I'm with you you're not alone. That's why he had to become like us. That's the miracle of Christmas. Paul Fang is an astroph- I'm sorry, Jonathan Fang is an astrophysicist, a brilliant man who's a follower of Christ. He said, "What is truly amazing about the Christian faith is the idea that God made the universe, from quirks to galaxies, but at the same time, cared enough about us. To be born as a human being. To come down to die and be crucified in the person of Jesus. And to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. That's why he came. That's why he had to be like us. I want to ask you if you will to bow your heads with me at this time. This morning as we come to a time of invitation, I want to remind you that the kneeling benches here at the front are open. And if you want to come and just pray, you're welcome to do that. There may be a burden that is especially heavy for you right now. And you just need to come and to say, Lord, I've read this passage in Hebrews and you are a faithful high priest who is here to help. Help me, Lord. For others, you may want someone to pray with you, and I'm here and I'll be glad to do that. There may be some here that have heard the idea of righteousness by faith. That struck you in the heart. Because you've been thinking, I have to work, I have to earn my salvation, and I, I feel like a failure. I feel guilt. And you want to know more about what it means to be saved by grace through faith. I will be glad to talk with you. If you come forward asking about that, I'll ask you just to have a seat. And after the service is done, we'll talk it in in depth about following Christ. But if nothing else, this morning, will you just rejoice that he became like us? We don't have to fear death. We don't have to be in slavery to it. And we have help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that Jesus became like us, that he represents us before you as one who can truly say, I understand. Thank you, Father. May you be glorified as we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.